Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm doing great. For this episode, we talk to filmmaker Jennifer Amell in her continuing coverage of the Jane Doe known as Suitcase Jane Doe. Right. It happened in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, at an area known as the Twin Tunnels, which is technically three tunnels that uh, go across. They span. There's a train track over it. They span a uh, pretty much a main road through there. And Jen has been looking into this case. We've done two episodes with her. And every time we do an episode with her, there's always a piece of her investigation that she just drops on us. Uh, this one happens to be uh, her interview with Buck Plank, and she talks about Buck and meeting him and walking down to where he found the suitcase. Now, Buck Plank was the gentleman who found the suitcase, cut it open, and there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the suitcase, what was inside, and some things that just weren't known. Like, it was wrapped so well that everything inside was dry, even though it was partially submerged and it had been there for a few days. So she talks to Buck, and it's a super interview, and we play a few clips. Okay, so that's coming up in just a minute. And we also want to mention Patreon. We are have kind of relaunched our Patreon, Lance, and you can find it and subscribe at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We are releasing video vaults weekly. Uh, at this point, we'll talk about some news. We'll read some comments from the week and... Uh, Obviously, you're following this channel, so you know what was dropped on this feed on Sunday. That is basically what we're doing on Patreon weekly, at least once a week. And that's a video version on patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. And we came up with the name Vault. I keep meaning to mention this. We came up with the name Vault because we're thinking what could be something that could be special inside of Crawlspace. And Crawlspace, the name, was developed because we wanted to express a sense of claustrophobic or getting in deep and getting into uncomfortable situations and it just seemed like a perfect name so what do you find in a crawl space what do you find in something that's in a house that typically shouldn't be there or or typically is like tucked away and that would be like a vault like a safe so we open up the safe once a week the vault once a week and we talk about pretty much whatever's on our mind and the news the crime news of the week yeah some true crime news some personal stories at times so you can become a uh, patron of ours for five ten or twenty dollars and you can basically buy us lunch once a month that would be the ultimate goal is that we need at least once a month uh, some some free lunch. But we are revamping our Patreon. We'll give you some at the $20 level. We'll give you a, a VIP meet and greet for any live show that we do, which we have a live show coming up on May 22nd. We'll get to that in a moment. And you'll also get outtakes of our ad reads where we ride the insane horse to the burning stable sometimes. Great visual on that, Lance. And so you mentioned this live show. We are appearing at the Riverwalk Cafe in Nashua, New Hampshire, on May 22nd, 6 p.m., 35 Railroad Square up there in Nashua. Parking is tight. Show up early. But uh, tickets will be on sale soon, and there might be a link in the show notes. The whole Brianna Maitland crew is coming, Lance. Started off where we were thinking, hey, maybe we could get uh, Greg Overacker because we knew that Bruce Maitland, Brianna's father, tends to shy away from the public light. He he will come on the show and he will talk about Brianna and he will talk about private investigations for the missing, the nonprofit that he has started in order to provide resources for family members looking for lost loved ones or cold cases that need to be assigned a, a licensed private investigator and the family can't pay for the pay for that service. So that's his organization. I think with that and Brianna, he really wants to come out more in the public light, talk about the uh, the nonprofit, and also keep the conversation going about Brianna. So Greg Overacker, while he's a little bit um, 
has got a little bit of stage fright. He's more of a behind-the-scenes guy. He has graciously agreed to join us. Bruce has graciously agreed to join us. He's coming up from Pennsylvania. And also Lou Barry is going to join us, current private investigator and former police chief. He's going to join us up there on stage. And Chloe Cantor from new podcast True Crime Twins. She is now a podcast superstar. True Crime Twins is out there currently, and it's getting very, very good reviews from the people who are listening to the early episode. So she will be there. She'll be on stage. It's going to be a regular roundtable, and we'll have a question and answer period at the end of the show. The Riverwalk Cafe serves alcohol. They serve food, and it's a really cool environment. We were there for the uh, the Science Cafe's Forensic Science Panel, and we just had such a good time, and we approached the owners, and we were like, this is a perfect venue for a live podcast, so here we go. Here we go. And uh, so you can check out the True Crime Twins as well uh, on Stitcher right now exclusively, I believe, but it will be added to Apple Podcasts uh, within the week. And Lance, we are also going to CrimeCon in New Orleans in June. June 7th, 8th, and 9th is the third annual CrimeCon yeah, we'll be there. We'll be on Podcast Row, and we'll be, you know, partying like Motley Crue. And if you want to party with us, use code CRAWLSPACE19 at checkout on CrimeCon.com, and you'll get 10% off the registration price. But before we go to CrimeCon and before we have our live show at the Riverwalk Cafe, we will be at the ASOC conference on Monday and Tuesday, April 15th and 16th. Yes, that is rapidly approaching, and if you're listening to this audio on April 10th, 2019, I believe that is the last day to register to the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases Conference in Albany at the College of St. Rose, April 15th and 16th. We're going to be there, Mike Morford, John Lord, so register and come say hi to us. And to bring it full circle, you know who else will be there? George Bush. George Bush will be joined by Jennifer Amell. Okay, not really George Bush, though. No. And uh, so check us out on Stitcher Premium. If you're uh, a new subscriber here, which we know we've had an influx lately, we have an entire archive that is available on Stitcher Premium. So check that out, stitcherpremium.com. We began this podcast back in February of 2017. So there's a bunch of episodes on Brianna Maitland and, well, a whole variety of topics. And Lance, this interview is brought to us by Echelon Protection and Surveillance. How do you know you can really trust someone? Do you need help securing evidence of insurance fraud or some other criminal activity to create a legal case against an untrusty individual? Echelon Protection and Surveillance can bring you peace of mind. EPS offers the discreet and comprehensive services of private detective and undercover agents. As a team of professionals with decades of combined experience, EPS conducts investigations for law firms, schools, insurance companies, retail outlets, personal estates, or any private individual. Echelon Protection and Surveillance is licensed to operate in Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and New Jersey. So visit www.epsagents.com for more information or to live chat with a member of the EPS team or call EPS at 610-831-0277. Use promo code CRAWLSPACE to get the best deal. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. So uh, give us a five-star review if you like what you hear, and check out the interview with Jenna Mel. Thank you. Jennifer Amell. Jen, how are you doing today? 
doing so well. How are you guys? We're doing very well, and you are comfortable in your in your home down there in the state of Pennsylvania, and we are nestled in here in uh, Wormtown, Massachusetts, and you've been busy down there. Indeed, I have. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys remember, but on episode two, we talked about that guy, Buck Plank. Buck was uh, the fellow who found the suitcase. Of course, that suitcase Jane Doe was inside, or at least half of her. Yeah, so I've been on a a mission to find Buck. If you recall from episode two, I drove down to the trout hatchery and I left my name and my number. And uh, with just hope that somebody would stumble upon it and know Buck and give it to him. And lo and behold, a few days after I did that, I got a call from a mysterious number on my cell phone and this kind of gruff voice answered. And he goes, Buck Allen Plank here. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I kind of I kind of grilled out at him a little bit. I might have freaked him out. <laughs> you you might have fangirled uh, Buck Plank. I did fangirl Buck Plank. I was like, oh my gosh, Buck, hello. That's amazing. So he he agreed to be interviewed. He's a pretty reclusive guy, relatively private. So we drove down there, met him at the trout hatchery. Once we, uh, my camera guy got out of the car, he was like, oh wait, no, I don't want to be on camera. I didn't really understand that. And I was like, oh, uh. okay. <laughs> Turns out that this guy, Buck, um, was sort of on a litter patrol for the Valley Creek area. So he would often go like searching around in the valley looking for trash and refuse and people used it as a kind of dumping ground. So he's responsible for, you know, investigating and uh, finding a lot of different people. So that's why he was a little reticent to show his face because he said he's he's a man with, quote, many enemies. (laughs) Buck Plank said that he's a man with many enemies. Yes, just because of the litter, not... Because of anything else. Gotcha. Because he's uh, he's cleaning up litter down there by the uh, trout hatchery? Yes. Okay. Now, you sent us a clip, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did he say something about some kids in the area that didn't like him and that he used to uh, swing down from trees to scare them? He was a bit of a local legend. Yeah. Um, I think that was a bit of hyperbole on his part. I don't think he actually you know, was a trapeze artist. Right. But the kids actually <laughs> said that about him, right? But yes, yes. Um, I mean, as we discussed before, this area of the Twin Tunnels is a place where uh, teenagers would come and drink, you know, smoke some pot, just sort of hang out down there. So it wasn't a particular one group of teenagers who were there. He was just there to scare whoever was making trouble. And speaking of scary, there was some graffiti on the tunnel that spoke to Buck, I guess, specifically. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I didn't see this with my own eyes. I just saw the spray-painted suitcase. But we talked about before, there was a suitcase with a hand pointing out, um, and there was a speech bubble above the suitcase that said, uh, Buck, help me. So I'm really not sure who did that graffiti, but Buck was pretty freaked out by it. Yeah, I can imagine. That's an area that he traverses often, right, even today? He doesn't work for the hatchery anymore. Um, I think he mostly works as a commercial electrician now. But 
But yeah, definitely back in the day, he was there all the time. Okay, so when we talked to you in episode two of our Suitcase Jane Doe coverage, you had spoken to one of Buck's friends. Even he didn't know if Buck was even alive because he knew that he had some health issues. This is someone who stays so elusive and and for a reason. It almost sounds like he sort of embraces the, the local legend that he, he kind of is right now. What is it about your letter that caused him to reach out to you? Because he didn't have to do that. Did he say why it stood out to him? I think anytime you're presented with a mystery, you sort of have a compulsion to figure it out. And um, I didn't mention anything about the suitcase uh, in my little note that I left. Um, it was just like looking for Buck, if you know where he is, give him my number. I guess he, he reached out just to know who this person was who left a note for him and then he didn't seem too reticent about uh wanting to talk about it he's this guy seems like a natural storyteller he was like very animated in his speech and uh, when we do play his interview i really recommend um watching the video footage because he's gesticulating a lot he even draws a picture in the snow to illustrate what he was what he did with the suitcase okay and we can check that out on your YouTube page? You can actually check out that video on my website, suitcasejanedoe.com. I'll have it posted there in the blog section. Great. How did it all play out? He calls you, you fangirl. He says, why is this person having a seizure on the other end of the phone? And then where does it go from there? I told him what I was interested in hearing about, and he didn't have any qualms about speaking about it. I mean, it was a very sort of curt conversation on the phone and we uh picked a day to meet it was uh on a friday so i got my camera guy mike hicks shout out mike hicks talented dude shout out to <laughs> mike, mike. <Hicks. laughs> um so we piled into our car got all our gear together and met him down at the trout hatchery what were your impressions of him he was he was exactly how his friend john yank described him he seemed like a uh ex-hippie dude he was pretty laid back um He's humorous, and he didn't seem like he had anything to hide at all. Very forthcoming, gracious enough to talk to us a bit at the hatchery, and then he actually took us down to the tunnels and retraced his steps uh, and showed us exactly where the suitcase was, gave us some great information about what the suitcase was wrapped in. Yeah, when Tim and I listened to your interview, I think we both had the same you know, notion, the same feeling at the same time within the first like few words that he said. And Tim actually said, this guy had nothing to do with it other than finding the body. I mean, you, you just hear it. You can hear it in people's tones like, oh, you might have a little bit of a shadiness to you with Buck Plank. There was, yeah. It was just like he was telling you a story that happened to him. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think this guy is actually beyond suspicion. He did mention uh, during our talk that he was uh, the lead suspect in the case. When the police questioned him, they actually confiscated his pocket knife and kept that for a few years, actually. Yeah, that was uh, interesting hearing about. And then he actually ended up getting it back by, I guess, continuing to ask for it back by to the trooper, right? Yeah, because it had special meaning to him? Yeah, um, it was his father's knife that he'd given him, so it had some sort of sentimental value. Did the police effort in you as a suspect? Oh yeah, I was number one suspect. One of my friends, who is a um, I mean, guy I grew up with right up here, you know, ever since we were little, his dad was a sergeant of the police of Westchester, he became a policeman, he became a Chester County detective, and the whole thing, and uh, he kept me apprised of what it was, you know, and he said, yeah, you're number one suspect. I mean, they took my pocket knife, which was 
my father, one of my father's knives. And I said, if it was any other knife, that's fine, but I want that back. And it took me about a year and a half, two years, with him pressing, him pressing, him pressing to get that knife yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, if he was in any way considered to be a person of interest, he never would have gotten that knife back. Agreed, yeah. So you meet him at the hatchery and take us through what happens there. So he gave us like an overview of what uh, he found there. So there's like um, a pond near the tunnels, maybe like a little less than half a mile away. And there's a path that you can go walk down. And then that leads you through the middle tunnel of these three twin tunnels. Pardon the paradox. (laughs) So he walked down the middle tunnel and uh, he said he smelled something horrible, something decomposing, and which is what we speculated on, right? That there had to have been a really horrible smell. Right, because we're talking the middle of a heat wave in Pennsylvania, and this was in July. So that wasn't a deterrent to him, because he was used to uh, walking around this area, and uh, unfortunately, people had dumped, you know, dead pets. He said he found a dog in a cardboard box, like the... So he, like, the smell wasn't a deterrent to him. He still wanted to investigate where the smell was coming from. So as soon as he exited the middle tunnel, he walked maybe 20, 30 yards along the road uh, that leads through the the first tunnel. And uh, he said just off the road in uh, this shallow puddle, maybe foot to a foot and a half deep, he saw what looked to be a a van cushion or like a cushion torn out of a truck or something. You know what I mean? Like a seat cushion? Yeah, yeah, a seat okay. cushion. That was his impression of it? Yeah, that's from what a it distance? looked like okay. to him. Like one of those bench seats you would find in a pickup truck. Right. Because it was very large and it seemed to be, you know, wrapped in fabric. But the closer he got, he realized that um, it was actually a trash bag in there. So he saw an impression under the trash bag um, that was kind of crisscrossed, like a you would wrap a package. And um, he grabbed this this big suitcase and hauled it out of the puddle. And then he used his pocket knife, which the police confiscated later, to cut through the plastic bag. And underneath he saw uh, the maroon leather of the suitcase. And he took you out to that location later on. And how far was it from the road? Uh, and how was the terrain when you went there? And, and did he have any description of the terrain back then? Yeah. Um, so we went and it was winter. So it was snow covered, unfortunately. So we didn't get a, like a, a good visual representation gotcha. of what it would look like in the summer. But he said that the foliage would, would be pretty dense. Um, but this little divot in the ground was really close to the road. He said nothing was disturbed. There were no footprints, no tracks or anything. Like you could literally just pull your car up to the side of this road, get out and chuck the suitcase off the side of the road. It was like less than five feet down this little embankment. Okay, so that rules out anybody stopping, walking in there and trying to conceal it. Did he say that it was indicative of someone concealing it or was it literally just like you said maybe just tossed out of a car i mean he he used the words um dump job a sloppy dump job okay (laughs) he's speculating that this person just drove their car right up there and and threw it into the woods he didn't say any branches were broken like maybe it it had gone through like the 
shrubs and stuff there, but he didn't see any evidence of uh, the dirt being disturbed or anything like that. It wasn't buried. It wasn't concealed in any way. And tell us uh, what he said about the wire that the suitcase was wrapped with. Buck was really preoccupied. He was fixated on this wire. He's an electrician, mind you. So he sh- he's a guy who would know his wires. He described it as a kind of Romex wire. And I know if, if you're familiar with that, but it's the kind of wire you would use to go into your wall to wire you know, outlets and, and lights and stuff like that. But he said it was a peculiar kind of Romex wire that he had never seen before. He said it was industrial grade um, and it was wrapped very neatly around the suitcase in that crisscross package fashion. Romex wire. Industrial grade. Industrial grade. How, what's the diameter? How thick is that? Ooh, um, probably like two Sharpie markers. <laughs> I haven't seen pictures of the wire, so I'm not really sure. Now, when you described it, you said something about uh, it sounded like uh, an item that a, an electrician might use. What uh, what kind of professions use that kind of wire? Well, Buck's theory was, I mean, he had this longstanding sort of theory that he gave to the police that this crime was somehow connected to a carnival that was in town, um, just actually right up the road. This was an old farmer's market where they used to have carnivals during the summer. So he said that this wire could have been used to string up lights potentially at the at the carnival, um, could lead to a ride, would be something you would have on hand at a carnival like that. Could lead to a ride? Like it could be used to, to cover, um, I don't know, like another, like a bigger electric wire like these rides that these uh carnivals traveling carnivals uh set up and break down it has a lot of parts to it i imagine there'd be some wear and tear i guess i think that's what you're getting at right yeah i think like the industrial grade of it kind of ruled out um any kind of housing wire i see okay i just looked it up what romax cable is just to clarify when we're talking about this wire, I, that it was it's not a wire. This is a cable. So if people are listening and thinking a wire like, you know, like that aircraft cable wire, it's not that at all. There are wires inside the it's cable. It's a conduit for other yeah. wires to travel through. It has a rubber casing usually, yep. and you have three wires inside Romex, um, like a, a positive and a negative and a ground. So you have like a copper piece going through there. And it's flexible, but it would hold the shape that you flex it in. Right. Yeah, and it looks like it typically comes in a in a big spool. I know it sounds like we're kind of digging into minutia here. That's but what this, we do, Lance. Right, but this is like a really unique thing. You don't typically have this in every garage. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, this uh, is kind of pricey, too. This this big spool here that we're looking at is about $280. Um, so not cheap, as you said, industrial grade, which means that this was used during some kind of profession at some point that... Perhaps our killer or victim was associated with. Yeah, I think that's the bit of evidence that would uh, give the most sort of information about who did this or what it was connected to. Um, additionally, the the suitcase itself, like that material, it had been described before on uh, the NamUs site in Pennsylvania Missing and then identified that it was a small maroon suitcase. But Buck said it was pretty large and heavy to pull out of that puddle. 
and it was leather. So I imagine like a big leather suitcase wouldn't be that cheap. Like you wouldn't just use your good leather suitcase to dump body. So maybe it wasn't even the killer suitcase. Maybe it belonged to the victim. There's some information to glean from that as well. Oh, totally. Again, there's a carnival in town. People are traveling with the carnival. Someone would be carrying a oversized suitcase if you're constantly traveling. It would, at least in my mind, indicate that that suitcase belonged to the victim or was part of the surroundings that the victim was was of, was was in. Um, additionally, the garment bag, too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, like, a garment bag you would use, like, to keep a costume or a suit or a dress in nice condition. Like, you wouldn't get wrinkles or folds in it. So, this something that this is something that might be on hand if you were a performer of some kind, which I imagine maybe you would find at a carnival if there was some kind of performance or, some like, kind you of know, the... suit that you wear during a certain period of time. Like, a tuxedo would be an example of uh, what would normally come in a garment bag yeah, like this. a tuxedo or a suit or... Dress. Right. Yeah. Another thing to consider is the garbage bag that was wrapped around the suitcase. Buck described this as um, very neatly wrapped, like not a wrinkle on it. A very nice job wrapping this up. And the trash bags were taped along the seams. So it was like two trash bags cut to fit and wrap around the suitcase and then taped at the seams. So no water or anything could get into it. So there's no water damage at all to the suitcase. The suitcase was dry because of the way they wrapped it up with the garbage bags. Right, yeah. Okay, so it wasn't like completely saturated with water. Oh, no, it was sealed. It was sealed. It was sealed. It's, the, the water didn't get into it at all. The, when I pulled those, the, the cloth out of it, they were dry. Wow, okay. The, the, the trash bags and the tape, you know kept it like that you know i guess if it's a suitcase with a zipper that's not airtight or watertight so maybe that's why they wrapped it in the uh in, in the trash bags possibly was there any fluid i didn't see it like i said i only saw what i thought was probably you know a back or or belly and then then a, a, what i thought was an elbow or i thought was a knee mm. okay and you you didn't notice any like you said mottled skin yeah, that's what I thought. You ever see like a like a, a puppy's belly? You know, it's like white, and it has maybe like 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 camouflage patterns on it. Like you know, yeah. that's what I saw. Okay. When, I first, when the first, that's why I thought it was a dog because I picked up dogs in the past. Mm. Until I saw the the joint on the other corner, I knew that it was a human body in there. So, what do we take from that? Why is somebody not just dumping the body? the torso part of the body with the same degree of carelessness that they tossed the legs. What do we take from that? Because the legs were not meticulously wrapped like the torso was. Yeah, there's a lot of different strange psychologies going on in this, as we've you know sort of touched on before. The degree to which this body was cared for and wrapped up in so many layers is much different from the way the suitcase was thrown into uh, the foliage there near the tunnels, like it seemed to be a very kind of sloppy, not well thought out toss job. And the same thing with the legs too. I mean, that was just, those legs were just in a trash bag and 
sort of thrown into the woods and put in a shallow grave. So there was more effort there to like cover it up, but not too much effort. I wonder if the police have any information or any more information on whether those two trash bags were the same and also this wire and uh, the suitcase. It makes me wonder what work they've done into that. Now, you've had some conversations recently with a member, a current member of law enforcement, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, I spoke with the lead investigator for the state police on the suitcase Jane Doe case. His name is Trooper Chad Roberts. Shout out to Trooper Roberts. Thanks for uh, contacting Jen. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was very excited to hear from him. He was very reticent to say definitively that those were her legs because they never made a DNA match between the two. Currently, he is very reticent to say that. Has that just been his stance the entire time that he's been on the case? I just think he's uh, he doesn't want to say definitively something that has not been proven forensically. Wait a second. Hold on a second. So he said that he's not sure that the legs were Suitcase Jane Doe's legs? Yeah. Yeah, because they, they had brought in two forensic anthropologists to examine, I guess, the hip bone of Suitcase Jane Doe and the the legs that were found in Bucks County. And they weren't able to make a DNA match between the two of them because the legs were too deteriorated. The only reason why they do think that it is a match is because the the ball joint fit into the hip socket and they were able to match cut marks. Okay. He's operating under that assumption. Yeah, okay. That makes more sense. Right. But as we discovered in the last episode, these things sort of develop as we talk about them, right? We discovered that there were a a couple other women that matched the type of characteristics of Suitcase Jane Doe. There are other does in the area that may or may not be connected. Really, going back and looking at the legs and taking out the assumption that they are Suitcase Jane Doe's because they fit in, that's something that we have to reconsider now. I mean, we never even really reconsidered it until you just said that. I wonder about DNA testing. Is um, Could you get DNA from bones out of the legs or something? Oh, you could if they still existed. What do you mean? The legs were incinerated. Trooper Roberts also said that her torso was also destroyed. Okay. So what is left of her? They have her skull in custody. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's probably uh, more typical than we would want to believe that they incinerate evidence after a certain amount of time. I think that's just the reality. But uh, that would have been nice to connect those uh, those body parts definitively through DNA that really probably wasn't available back in 1995. Not as yeah readily available, especially in yeah, a small town we're police talking force. 25 years later. I mean, how do you know what's coming down the pike technology-wise? But we did learn through the O.J. Simpson trial, which was happening simultaneously through the work of uh, Barry Sheck. He was an expert on DNA, founded the Innocence Project. So that was when the world really heard about DNA and its potential. And it was still sort of a sci-fi-ish type idea for the regular person to sort of wrap their head around. So it wasn't the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. But you would think this would be in the minds of law enforcement, that they would know how to preserve DNA in 95. I also think it's a bit strange that they did destroy the body even after 20 years or so. What typically happens uh, with uh, unidentified bodies is that sometimes they're cremated and sometimes they're just 
put into a potter's field, like in sort of with a marker and, and number. So in the event that um, some new evidence comes up and they need to retest uh, the body, they can then exhume the body parts and do testing. In this case, we have no body and no remains except for the skull. Okay, well, that's not going to be an easy feat uh, to identify her. No. Now, is this Trooper Roberts, um, are are you going to have an interview with him at any point? I'm going to try to convince him to do an interview. He's a little difficult to reach. Uh, he's a busy guy. He works out of the Lancaster Barrack here in Pennsylvania, which is about an hour away. And he is responsible for three different counties. Yikes. So unfortunately, I mean, this is such a cold case. He just doesn't seem like he's had the time to really invest. Okay, well, maybe... Uh, we'll give him a hand. Yeah, we, I, th- I think you'll, yeah. you're going to have some luck there, perhaps. Now, uh, what about this uh, retired district attorney that you uh, participated in a radio show with? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, that was really exciting for me. We have uh, our local broadcast radio here, WCHE 1520 AM. Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> It's run by these great people who are interested in, in getting more media attention on the case. And I was interviewed by uh, Julia of the Julia Journal. Sort of talk about theories and r- remind people that this happened. The owner of this radio show, his name's Bill, um, he's actually really good friends with the former district attorney, Anthony Sarcion. So he convinced him to come on to the show, sort of talk about his experience with the case and and try to get new interest in it. Because it seemed like this guy was really passionate about this case. He really wanted to solve it. It, He was there on the scene. He saw the body. It seemed to have deeply and emotionally affected him. And it sounded like you and him developed a little bit of a rapport. Like, it just felt good between the two of you. Sure, yeah. I mean, it was a little difficult because there was, like, four people talking all at the same time. So it it was hard to, like, really connect. He did seem open to having you even take part in the discussion, which is just a huge hurdle to overcome in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. He was really encouraging about um, the true crime community, actually podcasts, blogs, that sort of thing. He said that they're absolutely a source that law enforcement should not disregard, that they should help them and they should understand how helpful crowdsourcing information can be. Yes, and uh, you're doing a great job with this, Jennifer. That's why I think Trooper Roberts is going to circle back and do an interview with you. Do you think you could get a personal interview with this um, retired district attorney? I am trying. Um, I asked Bill, his friend, to give me his number. Um, I haven't heard back from him yet, but hopefully that will be a possibility. And thanks to Bill for the shout-out on uh, their radio show because uh, that's the best show in Downingtown. That's uh, the best radio station in the best town and the best show in the area. Am I wrong on that? Oh, you're totally right. Everybody listens to WCHE. Let's go back to your interview with Buck Plank. I just have a couple more questions on that. Did he say that he'd been told over the course of his career at the hatchery and walking that area that one day you're going to find a body there? Yeah, he did. That was a little a funny anecdote that he was saying. He's like, yeah, it's a creepy place. You are, it's already in your mind when you walk through those tunnels that you're going to find something scary or nefarious. So yeah, he was saying, you know, one day, Buck, you're going to find a body in this place. Who told him that? Or was that just him thinking it? That was just him thinking it. 
so that they are parked here, suited up, walk up along the pond, along the stream, all the way up along the stream to the tunnels. Uh, I've, I've done that thousands of times. I walk through the center tunnel, which is a dirt tunnel, one side stream, one side's the road, and the center tunnel's dirt. And every time I go through the tunnel, I always look at my sunglasses and say, one of these days you're going to find a body in here. Right? So that day... Um Okay, well, that just goes to show the reputation that that area has. And are we saying that this is coincidental or not coincidental that the body was dropped in an area that already has this reputation? Can't say for sure, but like it did seem like a statement to me because I, I talked to a local here who's lived here her whole life. She said that this this place, the Twin Tunnels, has had a reputation for being creepy for you know all those lore and mysteries about the woman who hung herself in the tunnels. It's been a source of scary stories for years and years and years. And there's a whole the satanic panic thing that was happening, and they were sacrificing, allegedly sacrificing animals. So if somebody knew about this area, knew about the reputation that the Twin Tunnels had, this is a perfect drop site for them. So if, if that's where we're, where we're going, they knew the area. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not from the area, but they're familiar with the area, enough so they know some sort of urban legend about a specific location. Yeah, it could be some sort of sick sense of humor. Makes you wish they put some lights in those tunnels. I mean, don't you think a lot of these creepy uh, stories wouldn't have happened if they if there were some lights? Anyway. Yeah, just throw a light up. <laughs> yeah, I'll suggest it. <laughs> if nothing else comes from this podcast, we're going to get some lights in the Twin Tunnels. How heavily was that road traveled back then? Did he comment on that? He did, yeah. Um, he said it was... Uh, gave the impression of being very remote. Gave the impression of being very remote. Yeah, so there's like a quarry and like a shopping center like right down the road, but you can't see it from the Twin Tunnels. And there wasn't much traffic, he said, in the 90s, not like there is today. Now it's kind of used as like a thoroughfare between two more major roads, so there's lots more traffic. Was the shopping center there back in 1995? I think it was. Okay. Pretty sure there was the movie theater there. Uh, One thing that stood out to me if we're talking about Buck's character is how he responded when you asked him if he had any idea or any theories about who she was. He quickly said, I have no idea, other than he thought maybe it was somebody who worked at the carnival and was living a transient lifestyle. I don't know why that struck me as just a statement to his character. Like, he didn't even bother to say, well, here's what I think happened. He was just like, I don't know. He's kind of a great citizen sleuth, isn't he? I mean, very, very yeah. like uh, critical, critical thinking. Yeah, I, it seems like he was thinking he might find a body at some point during his job. Like, uh, you know, just kind of like something maybe we would do as traipsing through the woods. Yeah, he he investigates for part of his job. So, yeah, I mean, this guy, uh, this guy's a good resource. When he brought up the carnival, it didn't seem like he was theorizing that the victim could have been from the carnival. I think he was more theorizing that the perpetrator would have been connected to the carnival because of the materials used. That's not to say that it isn't the other way around. Or both. Or both, right. The district attorney that we were just talking about, Anthony Sarcion, he said that the carnival was a very viable lead that they were following up on. But by the time that they thought this theory had any merit the carnival was long gone it's you know full of transient probably didn't even give their real name cash business under the table yeah Mm -hmm. 
Yikes. Yeah, that's uh, that, that could potentially be a little bit shady depending on the carnival organization, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. I, I took a trip down to the Downingtown Municipal Building and asked if they had any record of uh, permits for, from 95. How'd that go? Uh, pretty well, actually. I got the name and number of a guy who did a carnival in town, but it wasn't the the exact carnival we were looking for, which was in another location on the other side of town. But he gave me the name of a company that used to be called S&S Amusements. The company has since dissolved, so I'm not really sure how to get in contact with them. But if you know anybody with S&S Amusements, please contact us. Shout out to S&S Amusements. We don't know whether or not that uh, S&S Amusements operated as one company traveling from town to town, or did they have a couple of troops, if you will, going to different towns and, and operating at the same time? It would be great to get a, uh, a breakdown of where they were in that time period, if possible. Absolutely. And if you did work at this carnival or went there and there was any kind of rumors of somebody going missing, um, if you had any interaction with somebody you suspect could have been this victim, contact us or the state police. So speaking of contact, can you, in the most delicate words possible, uh, explain any developments that might have happened since we last spoke in the case, aside from your interview with Buck Plank? Yes, and this probably accounts for my buoyant mood, but we had... I was just thinking you were very buoyant today. <laughs> it's because I've also had four cups of coffee, too. That's it? Maybe five. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I can't really talk too much about it because we want to keep uh, the safety of this person in mind and and the integrity of the case in mind as well. But we were recently contacted by a person who had information about a suspect. And so I subsequently went to the police with this information and it is being dealt with through the proper channels. Well done. Well done. And you looked into the suspect as well on your own. And I did. did you discover that the suspect may have fit a certain profile? I think the suspect fits a lot of the profiling that we've been doing. It's a really viable lead, and I'm excited about it. And some of the profiling that we've been doing is some theorizing on whether this person was familiar with the area, was possibly a truck driver, was possibly working for the carnival, was possibly in a motorcycle gang. And this is what you're talking about with the criteria that we've internally come up with. I won't check all of the boxes. I won't say which boxes are checked, but yeah, it was pretty uncanny how well this profile fit. Pretty remarkable. We don't want to say that, you know, this is, this is the person. Yeah. I am excited. So where do you go from here, Jen? I think we let the police do their job on that front. Otherwise, my focus is going to be still on identifying this victim. Because as it stands now with the suspect, uh, they probably don't even know her identity either. Understood. So we're still at square one. I think we're actually a little bit beyond square one because we put out the call for anybody who might have worked with or gone to, you know, been familiar with the carnival. I think all three of us right now are leaning towards this person probably worked for the carnival. Don't put words in my mouth, just saying, Lance, I'm just saying but we, I agree that we're not at square one anymore. We're probably at square two and a half. Yeah, yeah, 2.5 maybe. Uh, you also will be 
joining us at the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases on April 15th and 16th in Albany, New York. And you were able to go because of a connection you had within this particular industry. Oh my goodness. Yes, I'm so excited to go now. Um, yeah, a few years ago, I used to work in security and uh, I, was a, <laughs> I was a bodyguard for four years uh, with this company called Echelon Protection and Surveillance. They're a great local company in Pennsylvania. Um, they have a private investigation arm and they're licensed to operate in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. So if you're looking for that kind of help with a with a case or an insurance claim or a jilted lover, give them a call. They are professionals and they're great people too. Yeah, they sound like it. So you were a bodyguard. Um, do you does that mean you carry a weapon with you? I do. I'm I'm always armed. Okay. okay. All good. right. Good to know. Good to know. Don't fuck with Jen, everybody. <laughs> yep. Yeah, don't fuck with me. So Echelon is sponsoring you to go to the ASOC convention in Albany, which is awesome. Of course, that's uh, the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. Organized by our friend, Detective Kenneth Maines. Shout out to Kenny. And correct me if I'm wrong, Echelon's website is epsagents.com. Correct. Okay, yes. so there you go. Anybody who needs services, tell them Jenna Mel and Crawl Space sent you. Shout out to EPS. Well, good work, Jen, for all you're doing with Suitcase Jane Doe. The number one priority is, of course, to identify who she is. Hopefully, the case will actually get solved down the road. Again, anybody with information, contact the Pennsylvania State Police. Yes, yes, please. Okay. Or email me at suitcasejanedoe at gmail.com. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. <laughs>